Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Brian Marcy. Um, fortunate this week to be joined by um, Alan Murray, who is the CEO and president of Fortune. Alan, welcome. Hey, Brian. Great to be with you. So I, we were joking beforehand, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> age, I'm gonna age both of us because um, Dude. I remember watching you on Washington Week on PBS. This is a deep cut. This is so this bad. This is 90s. <laughs> So bad, 90s, 80s. I actually started doing it in the, in the 80s. Uh, I mean, the first time I went on, I was doing yes, sir, yes, sir, to all the people around the table who were twice my age. Um, uh, but yeah, you 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 have a good memory. Uh, that okay. Was, that 80s, was a, I, I was out watching PBS in the 80s, just to be fair. That was that. The, the, <laughs> it was the start of a very unsuccessful uh, TV career. So I'm usually talking with with people who spent their whole life on the business side and you know a lot of time in sales and then they go into these CEO roles. But you you're a journalist, you're a lifelong journalist. So talk to me about being a CEO going from the journalism side and what was the the hardest part of the learning curve, but what really gave um do you think that you brought uh, a different kind of perspective to to the job? Well, you know, the truth is, Brian, I've had both the the business gene and the journalist gene from the beginning. In fact, my my uh, uh, first journalist job was also my first entrepreneurial effort. I was nine years old and I started a neighborhood newspaper, walked up and down the neighborhood and took notes on what everybody was saying and sold it, uh, sold it for a nickel. So I pretty much throughout my career uh, straddled both sides, uh, uh, the management and business side. But I've never had the CEO uh, role before, and it is a different kind of, of, of responsibility and a different kind of focus. I've probably been paying close attention to the business side for 15 years. I went to Stanford Business School, uh, their senior executive program, and 2005. And when I came back to the Wall Street Journal, spent a lot of time developing new products, new conferences, new franchises. Uh, uh, so it's not entirely new for me, but it certainly feels different when the P&L is all your responsibility. Right. But at the same time in your DNA, you're a journalist. I love journalism and I, I, I still write. And, and frankly, Brian, I think that's a good thing. I, I, yeah. you know, I've had this conversation with many CEOs. Uh, you know, a lot of the best tech CEOs are people who were engineers to begin with. And I mm -hmm. think understanding the core creation process of the business is incredibly important in order to lead the business. Yeah, I agree. Um, so you, you, came to uh, Fortune in, um, I guess it was 2016? Very end of 2014. Okay. But you, you joined to, to, um, to lead the edit side. That's right? right. Okay. And then you sort of moved when um, Fortune got sold, it got bought. Um, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to go Chachavai. Gia Ravanan um, bought it, a Thai businessman, and you became CEO. And you were involved in, you know, I, I, I listened to the podcast you did with, with my friend Peter Kafka, um, but you were involved in the sale process and, yes, I was. and, saw, and saw it up close. Yes, um, as, you, as you know, uh, journalists, you know, uh, uh, people like me uh, uh, stay in journalism in order to avoid investment bankers. But I, I spent two years of my life with investment bankers, both uh, trying to sell Time, Inc., and then after that, trying to sell off Fortune, Sports Illustrated, and money. So, okay. So leaving deeply. leaving the private conversations private because I know you won't you won't talk about them. Um, what what sort of got you energized about a new regime 
uh, for Fortune and, and what it could become as a brand in um, in in chat. We'll call them chat because I know that's easier. Yeah, I, I I think there were two things really that got me excited about the idea of taking Fortune off as an independent company. One is that it, it just helps your focus. You know, at, it, as part of Time Inc. or as part of Meredith. We were very balkanized. You had the conference business over here, and you had the print business over there, and you had the digital business over there, and we couldn't really think of them as an organic whole. And so being independent, our own company, really helped that. And 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 the second thing is investment. Uh, you know, in the final days of Time, Inc., uh, at the end of every quarter, we were shaking the, the coins out of the cushions to, to try and make the numbers. And so you couldn't to take a really simple example, you couldn't get the company to invest in a paywall, which Fortune believed we needed, because the payoff wouldn't come in the same quarter as the investment. <laughs> so uh, uh, having a, a patient long-term investor buy the brand has really totally uh, transformed our possibilities. Okay, so uh, talk to me a little bit about that because I mean I, I've heard this with with other you know Meredith title timing titles that that um, that uh, ended up going off um, under other ownership. Um, what was the sort of vision that you saw for what the brand could become? Obviously rooted in print originally, um, and then diversifying. It's been diversifying for a while. Um, yeah, what's yeah. the vision? Yeah, so Brian, and, and you you uh, skipped over the fact that I spent a couple of years of my life as the chief content officer for all the timing That's publications. True. So I had a view of all 24 of them, and, and Fortune was distinct because it had this other line of business, uh, the executive conferences. I mean, we by last year, we were getting 40% of our revenue for executive conferences. Every other Time magazine at the time that the company was sold was still getting 70% of its revenue from print. Yeah. Uh, whereas, whereas we were getting a majority of our revenue from conferences and digital print had become a minority. So we had a, I thought we had a shot as a business that was probably better than the other magazines. Okay. So this gets me into the events because I mean, events are at least temporarily, the new print. It's not something you want to, people always wanted to brag about like, the <laughs> diversification and, and into events, but now it's like, uh-oh, because you can't have them. Um, so it was 40% of the revenue, but you didn't really have much of a consumer. You did have a consumer revenue line, but it was not, it was not as big as events. Yes? Uh, well, we had a consumer revenue line for events uh, that was substantial. Okay, but That's for not content. But for content. No. I mean, getting we had, people paid directly for at, content. At the time that we were sold, we didn't have a paywall on our on sure. our site. Our only revenue was the revenue we got for selling the magazine, which was not that much. Right. Um, so weren't able to have a paywall. And so events were a, a large portion That's right. of that. And you got a bunch of different franchises, Fortune Global Forum, Most Powerful Women, Brainstorm Tech, CEO Initiative. Um, explain, I mean, this explain the power of the events model, because, um, I know you guys believe in communities. We certainly believe in that, um, at Digiday. Um, but yeah. talk to me about the difference between an events business and a communities business. Well, uh, look, 
first of all, I see all of this as connected to the media business. I mean, we are in the business of helping executives expand their peripheral vision, understand what's going on in the world around them. We do that in our journalism, and we do it in our events, and we do it with our, our communities. Uh, so, um, uh, so I think they're very closely connected. Um, when you talk about the difference between an events business and a community business, it's man mainly one of a lasting relationship. If you look at something like Brainstorm Tech, which has been going on for a long time now, or the Most Powerful Women uh, Summit, the people who go to those events, uh, many of them go year after year. They mark it on their calendar. They love being there. And if we didn't program anything, they'd probably still want to show up just to see each other. So I think uh, uh, communities are just over the long term uh, much more powerful. And and as you know, Brian, I mean, that's kind of what media is about. The best mm -hmm. media properties are the ones that have a loyal audience that comes back again and again because they feel part of it. They belong. Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, because, you know, moving people from from actually being an audience to being, I think a lot of a lot of publishers in, in chasing big numbers and comm score, they were talking about an audience that truly wasn't theirs. Um, and That's community, right. your numbers might be smaller, but like, it's just so much more powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the way we've been reorienting the business for the last few years. So I want to talk about then the, the membership models. I think that obviously ties in very closely, but I mean, you got a near term challenge. We have a near term challenge. A lot of media companies that have events have a near term challenge in that when you go from an in-person event to a uh, virtual event. It's it's kind of like, I'm going to do another throwback to the, the Jeff Zucker, <laughs> you know, tra trading analog dollars for di for digital pennies. Um, talk about that transition. I mean, obviously, it's it's I think it's temporary. I think people are going to to want to convene in person again. But um, dealing with it is really difficult. I mean, that hasn't really been our experience, Brian. Uh, and, and that's the amazing story of 2020 for Fortune. It's it's kind of Dickensian, you know, worst of times, best of times. I mean, we were all in March. We thought, oh, my God, we can't do live events this year. It's really going to clobber us. But we've had really surprising success uh, with these virtual events, um, uh, bringing small groups, 20, 30, 40, very high-level executives together for conversations. They like it. A number of the CEOs who attend our events have told me they actually like this better than the old model because they don't mm -hmm. have to get on the plane. They don't have to fly to, even if it was a beautiful place like Laguna Niguel or uh, Aspen, uh, they can they can do it from home. Uh, so, so we found... Uh, uh, we've surprised ourselves, I think, with our ability to get sponsors to support these and to get attendees to pay to be part of them. We've done something like 40 virtual events since March. We have another 30 uh, scheduled for the uh, rest of the year. And, and I won't claim that they are as profitable as our live events, but they're but but they are uh, they're real businesses. Right. But I mean, not as profitable, but I mean, usually, at least from from everyone I talk to, the revenue is lower, but your costs are lower. I mean, L Laguna right. Niguel, I don't know where you go in Laguna Niguel, but nowhere is cheap. So a lot that's of money right. is <laughs> No, that's right. Catering, you get into the events business, you start to understand, like, maybe I should be in the catering business because, like, you know, to get coffee for, for people is like 40 bucks a head. Um, but are you saying that you can see profit margins on an apples to apples basis that are 
just as good in a virtual environment than uh, an in-person environment. They are not yet just as good. Okay. But they're he- but they're heading in that direction. I think the the uh, the the quote you made about analog dollars and digital dimes uh, or digital pennies, which pennies. is a, a but you're saying it's pen- dimes. Yeah, it's <laughs> a quarter. A, it's a painful reality that you and I have lived with in the media business for the, a long time. I don't see that in the in the convening business, in the events business. I think virtual has way more value than that. Okay, so what do you think comes out of it for the the events business? Um, I, I see you yeah. already have one. You, you're planning on going to Boston in May. We uh, that's the first the first live one we're okay. we're hoping to hold. I think those will be different, though. I I, I do think that. You know, we had a pretty strong policy of saying, if you're going to speak at one of our conferences, you need to show up. We're not going to bring you in by video. I I suspect we'll ease up on that in the future. And, you know, people who feel that there might be some danger in traveling and want to participate uh, virtually, I I think we'll do more of that. I think we'll continue to do uh, virtual events. And we have this really uh, exciting new product that we're launching next month uh, called Fortune Connect that is going to continue to be a membership community of executives that will get together principally virtually. Right. So I, I want to talk about that because I want to talk about the membership model because, you know, look, events are great. The profit margins are really good in events, but it is true that they don't scale infinitely. I mean, you can right. only do, I know exactly. you go, I know you go to most of the events, <laughs> but you could not possibly go to a thousand. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, uh, uh, sort of a, a fond memory of Digiday was when the first day we had events in, uh, three different continents. So there are only so many events you can do. They don't scale like media. Absolutely. Um, advertising is, is, um, fine business, it's high margin. Um, but obviously it's, it's a little bit, uh, a challenge. So talk to me about the membership model. You guys rolled it out, um, I guess end of, end of, uh, last year, um, and what did you, how, how did you think it through? Because it, a lot of people have, have, uh, have put up paywalls and subscription models. Um, so how, where did you see Fortune fitting in that? So, uh, Brian, this is another thing that we've been thinking about at Fortune for at least four years. And again, it got shut down at Time, Inc. because we realized that it was going to require some investment and the company just wasn't willing to make that investment. But it's based on two things. One is the one you already cited, which is our traditional conference business isn't scalable. So how do you do something that is scalable? And the second is something that we heard from the attendees at those conferences. You know, the most powerful women's conference summit, uh, it attracts the, the top CEOs in business. They come regularly every year. Uh, but I heard from a lot of those CEOs who said, you know, this is great. I, I get great information here. It's really valuable to me, but I'm not the one who needs it. I've I've made it. You know, I'm at I, I'm at the top. The people who need it are two or three or four levels down from me. And we heard this story over and over again from uh, executives who said, you know, they'll have high potential employees in their company who will rocket up the ladder. Let's say you're in a bank. You get the banking business cold. You know, you're a great banker. At some point 
you reach a level where your next promotion is going to put you into a strategic leadership position where you have to know more than banking. <laughs> you have to understand what Alibaba is doing and how that might impact you or what the blockchain is all about. Or you have to uh, have a uh, an understanding of stakeholder engagement beyond just delivering the results that were your KPIs at the bank. And, and, and so those are the kinds of things we focus on at our events. And, and what these people were telling us was, we need this for our emerging leaders, which is a much larger group of people. And that's what yeah. Fortune Connect was, that's what Fortune Connect was created for. I mean, we're, we're, we'll have, we're launching October 5th, we'll have several hundred people, maybe close to a thousand people on the platform at launch. We think it can grow to uh, 10 times that, maybe 100 times that, uh, a, a scalable platform for providing the lessons that we give at our conferences to a much broader group of executives. Okay. So, I mean, everyone at Digiday knows that I love drawing funnels. So, I mean, the, the tip of the funnel where it's the smallest numbers, but the highest monetization yeah. are clearly the events. I mean, the, the, you can, there, are, there yeah. are only so many CEOs. I mean, I guess you can get yeah. down. There's a lot of businesses, but like you, you focus on larger businesses. Um, and this is creating a little bit of like a middle tier because I think the tier above right. that would be just a regular subscriber member. Um, and then above that is just someone you show ads to. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and our problem at Fortune was uh, in the Time Inc. era, we only had the extremes of the funnel. Yeah. We had all the free content. All our content was free to anybody who wanted it. And then we had these very expensive, you know, $15,000 executive conferences. And we had nothing in between. Yeah. So now, one year, one year later, we have a paywall, we have a subscription level, and with Fortune Connect, we'll have a uh, a, a different uh, executive level. Yeah, and I think what's I think a lot of times people like neglect that middle of the funnel, and it's it's critical because it's like you what because people like numbers and like they like revenue numbers, which is the bottom of the funnel. But they also like numbers, like audience and stuff like this and CPM. So like. The top of the funnel has always gotten a lot of attention, and now the well, bottom you, of the funnel. But like that middle is important. If you, if you don't have a middle, you don't have a funnel. Yeah. I mean, there was there was no connection between the millions of people who were reading our free content and the uh, few thousand people who were going to our executive conferences. There yeah. had been a connection in the print world because they read the magazine. But in the free world, it didn't exist. And, and, and that, by the way, our, we should talk about newsletters because our newsletters have played an important yeah. role there. Because you need to become a habit, right? I mean, yes. like, you, you know, we, we're the drive-by media era is, is thankfully behind us, I think, mostly. Um, although SEO is still great. Uh, <laughs> talk to me about how the, the role the newsletters play within the funnel because it seems like, you know, newsletters have, yeah, they go in and out of flavor, but now they're they're everyone loves newsletters. I, I love newsletters, uh, but that's because that's the little piece of one. journalism I cling on to. <laughs> I'm still writing, you know. Yeah, but, I love podcasts. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, but but I also think what we found is, you know, we had a real emotional relationship with magazine readers. I mean, the very first issue of Fortune that I edited was the most powerful women issue. And Ginny Romady, the CEO of, of IBM, was on the cover. And uh, I, her people told me afterwards that she had that issue framed and gave it to her mother for her mother's birthday. 
So, you know, that that tells you something. And, and uh, uh, Cliff Leaf, our editor-in-chief, had a similar experience with Jamie Dimon, where he teared up when he saw his face on the cover of Fortune magazine. So in the old days, there was this emotional connection. When you moved into the digital world, you lost a lot of that. You were, you know, you were reaching people on Facebook. You were reaching people through yeah. Google. You just didn't have that kind of emotional connection. We found the emails have been our vehicle for reestablishing that emotional connection with yeah. your readers. Well, it's also, uh, it's, it's, very it's, it's a finite editorial product. And I think one of the challenges, I mean, I know you saw it obviously throughout your career is when you move into a world of, of infinite media, it's, it's less curated and by extension, it's going to be right. less personal. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and, and so, uh, just to, to finish the point on the newsletters, to date, we have been using the newsletters for connection, engagement, but mainly for marketing. We don't charge for the newsletters. We use them to build the audience and then uh, uh, direct them to uh, various paid products. So explain that decision, because, I mean, I would think that it would be very tempting. I mean, you rolled out the the uh, membership model, the broad membership model, around uh, mostly around content, I believe. Uh uh, I guess it was about less than a year ago. Um, wouldn't you want to put those as part of the membership, like as a membership perk? We thought about it, but they, uh, but they help build an engaged audience, which helps us yeah. get people involved in, you know, get people over the paywall, get people involved in our conferences. And so, and, and by the way, they're, they're, they tend to be sponsored. So they make okay. money. Yeah, they so, can make money. But they do you know, a different... I, they do a different job, right? I mean, I think that's the important point. It's like yeah, everything I'm, has to do a job. I mean, you know, uh, uh, Jim Vandehei is a friend of mine, worked for me at the Wall Street Journal way, 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 way back when you were watching me on Washington Week in Review. Uh, and I think he's done a brilliant job with Axios. But it was always my impression that they went into the newsletter business thinking they would eventually charge for them. Yeah. But, but haven't because they think this seems to work pretty well. We may get there someday too, but right now we're using the newsletters mainly to guide people, to get people over the paywall and to yeah. inform people and get people excited about our events and and, of, and our new membership product. So you're uh, you're nine months in on the sort of paywall part of, of memberships. I'll, I'll put it in the air quotes. I um, liberally use the air quotes. Um, and talk to me about how you decided on the pricing. Oh, uh, uh <laughs> I, I, have we decided on the pricing? <laughs> I feel like it's something that is, you know, every news organization is evaluate reevaluating that almost every day. If you look at the kind of offers that people put into your mailbox, look, this is a, and you know this, this is a yeah. tough, a tough business, but a necessary business. I don't believe at the end of the day, any organization that does serious journalism is going to have to have a direct relationship, a direct pain relationship with its readers to survive. The advertisers are never going to do that for you. Uh, the platforms are never going to do that for you. So, so this is something we had to do, but it's a, it's a long, slow slog. I mean, we're still, yeah. you know, we're in the first inning. We're just getting going. So, uh, you know, we made some decisions based on testing of what our initial pricing would be, but we're tweaking it every week. Does that mean tweaking it down? Not always. We've, <laughs> we have, we have tweaked it. I can think of occasions when we tweaked it up. Yeah. 
Um, so right now, where is it? Because I mean, it came out like you know, there's three different tiers. Um, and how did you decide on doing tiers? Because I, I, it's one of those mechanics things that I'm always very interested in because I think the temptation is to have like have more um, different options, but. Uh, also, I generally we, think that people like a simple, like, "Hey, pay us this," and then we this. we we I, I we were working with a consultant who was really wedded to good, better, best pricing, okay. uh, and had uh, done a lot of work with others uh, people who had successfully put up paywalls. We paid a lot of attention. I don't know if it's on your radar screen. We paid a lot of attention to the uh, Harvard Business Review. Yeah, uh, I think Adi Ignatius has done a good job there. They had a three tier pricing: good, better, best. Uh, and so and so we started out with that in mind. But I think as you know, back to your funnel point, yeah, your your funnel needs a middle, but it can't be too complicated. Sure. Um, and so as we as we now unveil this new membership product, Fortune Connect, which is a you know is a couple thousand dollars, uh, I, I, I think th- that gives us an opening to simplify our uh, paywall price. Yeah, because then you'll get. A little too complicated, maybe, right? Because it's like right. you've got good, better, best, and awesome. Right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> better, better, really good, really, really good. <laughs> yeah. So, talk to me about that because um, you know, look, I think a lot of people, a lot of people talk about Politico, right? And and um, a lot of people talk about the how Politico has been able to operate on a, a few different um, on on two different polls, I guess, you know, they, you know, they've got like a freely available, they haven't really done much on, on the just regular subscription side, but they've got a big enterprise. They, they, they charge a ton of money. Um, you know, collecting a couple thousand dollars from people sounds, uh, sounds a lot better than, than collecting, uh, you know, $50 from 40 people. Well, look, I think they're both important, but if you go back, if you go back to the funnel conversation we were having, um, uh, how, have you ever done like a, a check to see how many times you talk about funnels on your uh, podcast? Uh, I, I never have, but I mean, I do it internally, so it all bleeds. I, sometimes but, my funnels become pyramids, though. That's that's my we, twist. We, we can do that. We can do that. But if you go back to what we were talking about, we existed at opposite ends of the funnel, the free end and the very expensive end. Yeah. We think of the paywall as building up from the free end, saying, hey, there's stuff here that that you want, that you are willing to pay for, and, and here's what it is. And we think of, of Fortune Connect, the membership product, as building down from the, the conference tier. So it's really much more about the kinds of insights and connections that you get at a conference than it is about the kind of content you get right. uh, uh, online. Uh, and, and so that's the way we're looking at it. So what kind of scale can Connect get to, do you think? I, I, I think, uh, you know, I think we could, uh, 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 we will be multiples of thousands uh, next year. And I think it could be, uh, ultimately be tens of thousands. Okay. So far larger than, I mean, because like, again, going back to the scale thing, um, not just on a revenue side, but just the number of people you can convene in an in-person event is constrained. You're not doing gigantic right. web fortune web summit type events. Like they're they're by necessity they have to be they have to be smaller, right? Yeah, that's right. And here we're, you know, for Connect, we're going to be doing virtually daily events. We're going to be doing networking events. We're going to be doing uh events with uh top 
business leaders and CEOs were doing some uh, working on some coaching around some of the key themes of the platform. So, so it'll be a it'll be a pretty rich buffet that uh, members can choose from. Do you end up looking at at where Fortune is going as as more in the B two B realm or in B two C? And I know yeah. it obviously plays in both, which is yeah, actually I, a great I, place. I, I think Fortune has always been a little more in the B two B realm. Uh, and if you look at the uh, uh, if you look at the kind of of uh, companies that uh, advertise with us, uh, but also are supporting Connect. I mean, our our launch partners for Connect are going to be. Uh, I mean, we don't have them all pinned down yet, but uh, uh, but Accenture is there, IBM is there, our, uh, uh, Genpact is there. These are companies that mostly work on a B two B level. So I do think Fortune is is uh, uh, in many ways a B two B brand, even though we have obviously a very large consumer uh, footprint. Mm-hmm. Uh, final topic is we're going into the election. We're at a very perilous time uh, right now, I believe. Um, and we've got overlapping crises. Do you see that changing at all Fortune's mission? Yeah, it has changed Fortune's mission. And not not in terms of focusing more on politics, but kind of in terms of focusing less on politics. One of the things that has happened over the last decade that I found I find as a journalist fascinating is that business leaders have changed the way they think about their jobs. You know, as somebody who's been doing this for four decades, uh, I know that a decade ago, if, you know, if you had a, like what happened in Charlottesville in the early days of the Trump administration or the Indiana religious liberties law that was seen as discriminating against gays, no CEO would have talked about it 10 years ago. They wouldn't have opened their mouth. And what we've seen in the last five years, and it's intensifying and is really intensified in the last six months with the George Floyd crisis, is business leaders are redefining their job. They recognize that they have to speak out and get involved in issues that mm-hmm. they once thought of as the purview of government. Um, uh, I mean, the, the, all you have to do is look at Ferguson and how few CEOs said anything six years ago when that happened, and George Floyd and all the passionate statements that came out of C-suites to realize mm-hmm. something has changed. And it's connected to politics. I think a lot of, look, business leaders are at their core very practical people. They like to solve problems. They're increasingly frustrated that the political system doesn't seem to be geared towards solving problems. It seems to be geared towards dividing people and gaining political advantage. Yeah. But wouldn't so, that pull you more into politics? No, quite the opposite. It <laughs> is pulling us more into helping, encouraging, even celebrating when it happens, uh, business leaders take a stronger role in issues like climate change, in issues like uh, job training and skills training, in issues like diversity and inclusion. I mean, you see, I wouldn't say it's the majority of business leaders, but you see more and more business leaders stepping into that area. And that's become a, a, a big focus of ours. I'll give you just one example. Uh, we, five years ago, started something called the Change the World list. We had all kinds of lists before that, you know, focusing on how big companies were, how profitable they were, how much their employees liked them, how admired they were. But this list was an effort to look at companies 
that we're making serious progress addressing social problems as part of their core business strategy. Uh, and it, it's about to come out, uh, uh, come out this fall. It's a great list, and it really shows a change in the business community that in turn has been uh, changing our mission as a, a media organization. We okay. see our... We see, just to sum it up, we see our yep. mission is making business better. Uh, that, and, and that means calling them out when they do bad, but also celebrating when they do good. Um, final thing I always like to ask people, I know like as job CEO, you're focused like entirely on fortune and, and, and um, its success. But what are a couple of media businesses that from the outside you're impressed by? Well, you I already say, mentioned- You can't say the New York Times. You can't say the New York Times. No, I, and I wouldn't say the New York Times. Huh? I, I, uh, I already mentioned one, which is Axios. I think what Jim has done there is really smart uh, and really impressive. And I'm sure there must be a second if I think about it hard enough. But, you know, the media business is uh, it's such a tough business because the, as the print version, as print has declined, and that's obviously been accelerated by the pandemic, Digital has just become so difficult. But let me say, I got to tell you one thing, though. Okay. I, I, I got to congratulate our team for this. As difficult as digital has become, uh, we're going to have a bigger digital advertising year this year than we had last year. So we're seeing the numbers go up, which I think is is uh, uh, really interesting. That's uh, it's not to say we've cracked the code. I still think uh, subscription revenue is important, but uh, it's moving in the right direction. Yeah, media is the hardest of the hard businesses. <laughs> it yeah, seems. yeah, yeah. Have you thought about changing your podcast to a different topic? Uh, yeah, no. I mean, on catering, <laughs> I want to. I want. I want to get the secrets of charging forty dollars a head uh, for coffee. All right, <laughs> those go. margins are good. <laughs> Alan, I want to thank you so much. Um, thank you for uh, the the time today, and also on Washington Week back in the nineties. Appreciate that. <laughs> I had hair then. <laughs> okay, thank you all for uh, joining us. Uh, we'll be back next week with a new episode. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Al.